You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. This means that unlike mainstream social media, your trophy pictures won't be censored. They're encouraged. As you spend time on Go Wild, you will earn awesome rewards such as gift cards, free swag, and big discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex. You will even earn $10 just for signing up. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter with Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. We're near summertime. Everybody's getting ready for food plot season. People have already been planning. I'm on the midst of starting to plant my food plots, but I've really been focused on working with clients. I just got out of a client visit here locally in New York. I've got another one next week and another one after that. So the train continues here in New York. I'm really excited because a lot of times in this podcast, we've been focusing on you know, application, implementation, those type of activities, strategy, you know, hunting strategy. We're going to talk about, you know, summer strategies, you know, this summer, but we haven't really got into any biology pieces of it. And, and I've got a few guests that I want to have on, but I've got a really important guest today because I've been talking to him for even before I started this podcast, I wanted him on the podcast. I wanted him to contribute super smart guy. And, uh, Mariah Borges is one of these guys that I've known for a couple years. You know, uh, I actually met him at a deer, deer steward course. He's an MSU deer lab. He's a deer biologist. I'm going to let him introduce himself, but I'm really happy to have him on the podcast because, you know, having the science side of things can really help the management side of, of the equation. I think that's important that we have a balance as well. So, Mariah, are you on? Hey, John. Happy to be here. Um, yeah, so it's in, introduced. Um, I'm a deer biologist. I now work for the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. Prior to that, I, I worked up in Indiana um, for their DNR as deer biologist. And, and before that, I think actually when I met you years ago, I was a graduate student at the MSU Deer Lab. Um, so that, of course, time there being a researcher as a student was really impactful in forming course my knowledge around deer management and uh, and, and being able to, to develop relationships with some of the, the best deer re- researchers in the country and so that was some some years ago and and now I find myself working for for North Carolina and, and as deer biologists I'm essentially responsible for monitoring populations across the state and informing management decisions 
related to, of course, seasons and uh, in, in really managing those population levels. That's one part of my job. Of course, I have other duties like um, chronic waste and disease management since uh, it's directly very impactful to deer populations um, and, and a number of others. But essentially, if it comes down to deer and it's a statewide issue or, or something like that, it, it kind of falls in my lap and, and I get to work with a lot of other fine scientists here and, and biologists across the state. So it's a fun job. I really enjoy it as a deer nerd through and through. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I love to deer hunt and that's always been been my thing for a number of years. And, and, and habitat management has always been a hobby of mine, something that I've enjoyed doing and that, that kind of led to my desire to research deer for, you know, for my life and, and, and really devote my career to working around deer management. So that's a little bit about me, but I'm happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you on. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I like the reference to deer nerd. You know, the the funny thing with you and when I had talked to you years ago, you know, we were talking about a few different things and I could just tell the passion. You know, you, you are, you know, by far, you're very interesting. Uh, you're very intertwined with the research, even though, you know, now you're on the, the recommendation side, you're managing, you know, an entire state. You are still a researcher. You do pay attention to those things and, and follow through. And, and obviously that impacts some of your decisions. The thing that I do really, I'm happy to have you on this is, you know, a lot of times when we talk about population dynamics and and managing those populations, there's a lot that goes into it that just the average deer hunter doesn't think about. And it's trying to take some of the pieces of how you look at it from a state standpoint, apply those and and maybe taking the pieces from a landowner and saying, okay, what can I do better on my landscape to deal with situations? If you have CWD or any, any type of disease that's impacting you, you know, how do you, how do you approach those, those issues? So let's kind of like break down the topic. So I think we want to talk about, and I'll let you leave the topic. Let's let you explain what you want to talk about today. Yeah. So I think the, the subject to really tackle today is density dependence in deer populations and what that means. That that term's thrown all over the place. The deer are density dependent, and um, the, of course that that services in many different ways and how it affects uh, reproductive output and the condition of deer, the habitat quality for deer. And I want to tackle those subjects, but before we get into it any further, I just I just want to say this principle of density dependence works for deer populations regardless of scale, right? If we're looking at this from a statewide level, countywide level, which is what I normally do if I'm, if I'm monitoring a population, I'm looking at countywide data or even at a property scale, um, what changes is how you apply it and how you monitor those populations. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in part two, and, and we'll structure that conversation completely around what a private landowner can do um, in, in, in monitoring a population. To be able to get to that, we have to discuss what is density dependence. And um, so I, I imagine most listeners out there have some understanding of this, but it really is the reason why habitat management and a holistic approach to improving habitat quality is important if you want to have a robust quality deer herd. And so um, before we get into it, w- w- what we're going to have to talk about this is, is somewhat of a graphical representation, which is a little bit difficult when you're in a podcast but um of course imagine everybody's used to looking at a line graph you have your y-axis on the left which goes up and down and your x-axis is what goes along the bottom okay Um, if we're talking about the reproductive output of a population as the line the line will go up to the to an increase from the left to the right sloping upward right 
That's how we would imagine this population increasing over time if nothing was done to take deer out of it. What happens is, is that population increases, it gets closer and closer to carrying capacity. And when that happens, we see reductions in fawn recruitment, we see reductions in, in deer quality, but is that, that that's that principle of density dependence. Okay, Mar- Mariah, can you wait one second? So you used the term carrying capacity. A lot of people may not know what that means. So let's right. Let's define what comp- carrying capacity means first. Right. I'm glad you brought that up. So so yes. Yeah, so carrying capacity is a finite number of deer that that habitat can support. Okay. So let's say for instance. We're managing a property that's 640 acres. It's a square mile, average home range, kind of give or take for a white-tailed deer. And let's say that you have 50 deer on that property, and your carrying capacity is 50 deer, okay, which means you would be at carrying capacity. So what does that mean? Well, carrying capacity is the number of deer that population or that that property that you're working on can support without there being a detrimental effect to the habitat moving forward or the carrying capacity in the future. So breaking that down a a little bit, if you're at 50 deer on your property and that's your carrying capacity, if you just step away, that population is still reproducing. If it's, if it's, if it's trending upward, that population is going to continue to increase over carrying capacity. It is possible to have a population over carrying capacity. And what happens is that when you're over carrying capacity, those deer, because the herbivory is so strong, it is reducing the quality of habitat for the future, and therefore your carrying capacity is actually declining because you have too many deer. So, breaking down this example a little bit more, how would that? How would we see those effects playing out? Well, it could be a reduction in hardwood tree regeneration. We can see um, an increase in herbivory on uh, oak seedlings or, or other tree seedlings, and therefore those trees will not be able to successfully reproduce, and the carrying capacity for the future would be would be hurt, and so it would go down. And, and so that's loosely the the definition of carrying capacity. It's that number of deer that that, pop, that habitat can support without it being detrimental to the habitat. There are a lot of instances around the country uh, of small properties and, and, and so on that are well above carrying capacity and have been for a number of years. And what happens is, like I said, the the if you if you had a graphical representation and, and the carrying capacity was a horizontal line um, on on that graph we discussed earlier, is our deer population increases over that carrying capacity. That carrying capacity line in the future will start decreasing it will actually start moving downward and our deer population will start to follow it right because there's not enough food for that population to to, to keep reproducing at the level that it is but the deer population will still remain above carrying capacity somewhat riding that carrying capacity down so going back to our property example if you're at 50 deer on your property and you allow it to increase up to 55 or 60 in five or 10 years, your carrying capacity would be maybe 45 deer or maybe 40 deer. And your population would have increased, would have decreased to say back to 50 deer, but you're still over the carrying capacity, therefore riding that carrying capacity down. And so carrying capacity course is, is important in that context because as wildlife managers, we have to be mindful that we're not sustaining a deer population over that, that carrying capacity because if we are, we're creating real issues for 
the future of that property and, and, and its well-being. So, Mariah, I want to and, and you just laid a, quite a bit on us, and, you know, carrying capacities are going to vary across various landscapes. I talked to one of the managers that's on this podcast, and he was in Iowa recently doing a uh, a project with a client. And, again, he, he's just looking at the deer numbers alone, and, you know, he's sitting out looking at a field. There's a, a few hundred deer in a field. I've managed areas like that in New York specifically, and the habitat is degraded. And as a result, the habitat being degraded – you get to see the physique, the actual, you know, the deer's physical state degrading. And as a result of that, you know, without the nutritional benefit of all you're talking about various plants, it seems as though that impacts, you know, their body potential, their their status, you know, their antler potential. Those things are all impacted when you have, you know, these, these limitations in the landscapes from a food standpoint. And then on top of that, of course, you know, having a a less productive environment, you know, creates issues down the road. And and one of the strategies, I'm just going to throw this out there, is, you know, not just managing your deer population, which is for another discussion, but looking specifically at the habitat and the consumption values of some of the plants that you have on the habitat and, um, you know, kind of starting to assess, you know, what is consumed, the volume of consumption, the richness of the plants, like the species richness, and, and kind of gauging that. Like if you're having exclusion cages or larger exclusion cages on my property, I have like 10 by 10 exclusion cages. And I'm looking to see, you know, what the consumptive values of some of these plants are. So I get more familiar with what deer are eating or not eating. So didn't mean to take us down another rabbit hole, but I mean, that all plays into what's the health of our herd. And when you're starting to exceed these numbers, you know, it is impactful. And Mariah, I got a question for you, because I think this is something people ask. A lot of these people that listen to this are managing their property. They're trying to optimize it. And carrying capacity is somewhat conceptual. And I, that's probably arguable, but it's it's somewhat conceptual. The idea is, you know, you're not exceeding your carrying capacity in an ideal setting. In fact, um, maybe the ideal setting is you're lower than your carrying capacity. So you're maximizing productivity and maximizing health of these deer and all, all the things that go along with it. And you're, you're kind of managing your deer herd. But what happens if you're the only one managing, in your example, 640 acres, and you get all these deer immigrating onto your property, and you, you become basically the deer suck in the neighborhood. And then as a result of that, you know, there's, there's all this dependency on your property. I know we're not talking about, you know, dependency in the definition you were given earlier, but you're, you're creating this deer suck. And as a result, the, the deer is sticking around your property longer. And as a result that you're like, I need to put in more food plots. I need to cut more timber. You know, it creates all these other factors that become more difficult to think through and figure out how much do I cut? You know, do I continue to cut? Do I continue to expand my food plots? What do I do? You know, and so any perspective on that, I'm taking us down a rabbit hole, but I'm, I I know people have this issue because I've seen this. Yeah. So depending on the state you're in, you're going to have to, to harvest more deer. And and then, again, depending on the state you're in, you will have different tools available to you. Um, a lot of states, North Carolina included, we have what we call deer management assistance program where we offer technical guidance. We have biologists that will visit directly with landowners um, and, and prescribe antlerless tags, in some cases even a few antler tags, for those properties um, to increase harvest if it's warranted. So in an example like you bring up there, that would be – the primary tool to manage that population if that were an issue. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I do want to stress is that depends by state and by agency whether or not that program is available or another similar program. Um, 
but talking a little bit more about you know what you were discussing there, and you know some areas where there's a ton of deer. Um, the the deer density across the the U.S. is not homogenous uh, by any by any means, and that is in in broad respect a result of different carrying capacities across the country. And so I'm just going to throw out a few examples. Take Southern Ohio, that's very forested, closed canopy. The carrying capacity there is much lower than, let's say, the driftless area of southwest Illinois, where you have a great mixture of agricultural lands that aren't too big to be just completely deer deserts because there is permanent cover interspersed along bluffs. And that in, in areas like that, you know, southwest Wisconsin and, and, and others where we have this great mixture of permanent cover and open ground um, that's, that's managed in a way that, that is beneficial to the deer, we see higher deer numbers as a result of higher carrying capacities. Um, and, you know, and, and you touched on it a little bit. Carrying capacity is somewhat theoretical, at least for the private landowner. You know, for, to be able to calculate your carrying capacity for a property, you have to figure in a long, long list of factors that affect it. The plant community, the amount of, you, know, you would have to, you know, you could even break it down to macronutrients available to those deer and, and the tonnage of those nutrients and then other competing animals and, right. and so on. It, the, the point is, it's not feasible for most management scenarios to calculate carrying capacity because for, you know, you can do all that and then the next year it changes because of environmental effects. You have a drought and so on. I say all that to say the kind of, to set up this conversation in, in, in our part two is that there are a long list of indices that a landowner can use to assess whether that population is increasing, decreasing, and in good or poor condition. And, and you touched on one of them there. Monitoring browse pressure on plants is one. So, so anyway, I wanted to mention that. But uh, again, to your question, there's the DMAP program. And then for another, for another action that a landowner could take in that scenario – they could increase the carrying capacity of their property. So we, we basically have two ways that we can affect this relationship, right? The carrying capacity deer population relationship can be affected by manipulating the deer population or manipulating the carrying capacity. And carrying capacity can, can of course, be manipulated by managing the habitat. We're, we're thinning timber. We're, uh, we're changing the disturbance regime on that whole property so that we're providing food during the key times when that population is stressed, uh, which introduces this important concept. And I, I imagine this has been discussed before on this podcast, but the, the concept of what is the lowest hole on your, in, in your bucket, um, depending on where you're at in the U S the answer will, will vary. If you're in a Northern region, it's more than likely late winter food availability, uh, food and cover availability. If you're in the South, Winter stress is, is largely not an issue, um, and, you know, unless maybe you're in the Appalachians. But in the south, it's the late summer stress period that is the issue uh, that can be limiting on deer populations because it directly affects reproduction. And there's a large decrease in plant, uh, high-quality plant availability during that time of year. So when we're talking about this carrying capacity idea, th there's a lot of moving parts, and, and those are the two ways that we affect it. And, um, and, and to increase the carrying capacity of our property, we have to raise the bar for the lowest hole in the bucket. So if we're in the south and we're at carrying capacity, planting an extra 50 acres of wheat, of winter wheat, isn't going to change our carrying capacity. That's not addressing the issue. Likewise, in the north, 
planting 50 acres of soybeans is, is not going to fix the issue uh, because the issue is more than likely in the north, of course, winter cover and, and food. And so I, I wanted to mention that in there because it's really important to think about the prescription for your property. So how are these deer limited? And is it even feasible to raise that carrying capacity? Um, in many instances, uh, land managers seem to focus on on one or the other. You know, they're either managing deer by shooting them or they're managing deer by planting food plots or, or you know, improving the, the habitat quality. Uh, but the proper approach is combining the two because they're both intertwined. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to kind of capture that. And I think I think you're right. I think people struggle with that. And And I can give you my specific example on my property. I'm starting to work with my neighborhood and getting those around me to really try to lower the deer numbers. Our, our deer numbers are, are pretty low to begin with, but I'm even pushing that further. And, uh, you know, for good reason, because I'm trying to promote, again, in my case, I'm trying to promote some um, uh, different plants across the landscape for future timber harvests in a bunch of different areas. So these re- regeneration cuts have purpose on, on my particular property. Again, another inflection point, if you're trying to manage timber, you need to think about you know deer impact or any other species that are eating you know your particular plants in your landscape and how to manage around that. And another strategy you know that I, I employ is uh, slash cuts. So b- basically you go in an area and you segregating out large sections, an acre or two that the deer can't get into, almost creating deer fencing. And then eventually allowing them to get in, in there once, you know, the, the species have reached, uh, you know, a tenable height where the deer can't really bother them. Uh, definitely a distracting topic, but something to consider if maybe you want to have browse plots and, you know, segregating slash areas off, allowing deer to get in those areas and ingesting, you know, maybe more woody species, which, you know, to Mariah's point earlier, if you're in the north, you may struggle with having a lot of woody plants and, and giving that more, you know, giving that an option as an option to deer. So, Mariah, I want to take you back. So, density-dependent factors, we're talking kind of about a bunch of different things. Biological carrying capacity is one of them. You know, we're, we're kind of talked a little bit about deer population, and then in that, there's competition for food, of course. And then when you have less food availability, obviously, that lowers the ability to, to carry more deer. And then in this case, you know, productivity, like pregnancy rates, fawn survival, um, those things all play into just how deer interact. Do you want to hit on any more topics when dealing? Because I'm thinking about like the competitive capacity or the competitive situation on the landscape, and then that kind of changes how deer coexist on your property. And and for the hunting side of things, people are wondering like, you know, how do I get the most deer, optimize it, and and balance everything? And and we didn't talk about buck to doe ratios and and all that that goes along with it. But you know, any any thoughts on those lines, particularly recruitment? That might be an important topic. That, that we care about and uh, maintaining that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we'll jump into that. I, I did want to just, just say a note, you know, and, and you're on the right track there with your property. You're talking about wanting to reduce that population further because any, any scenario where you're needing to um, soybeans are a great example. Folks will plant a few acres of soybeans and they have to exclude deer from them using a fence because they'll devour the soybeans. Well, well, that is a red flag right there that you probably have too many deer. And maybe instead of focusing on planting food plots, should focus on monitoring the population. And I would say the same to to your your issue there with, with tree regeneration. Um, and if you're having to artificially go in there and, and micromanage fences and around it and all, that's a huge red flag that something is way off base in, in the natural balance there and the deer population needs to be reduced, which, you know, to your point, you're, you're trying to, to do that in – in your neighborhood. So, so kudos there. Um, and, and that's a great example of those two being intertwined and, and, you know, 
if you don't have your neighbors on board, you might not be able to manage the population to the level that is desirable when really it needs to be much lower for any of your habitat management to, to be beneficial. And so how that affects deer, you know, individually, and this, this, you know, getting to your question, how do you maximize the quality of deer on your, your property? Uh, when we're talking about density dependence, the lower the, there's, there's pretty much this principle that, you know, if we, if we look at uh, the average size of a buck, let's say four and a half at maturity, the average size of his body and his antlers will be larger on average, the lower the deer population. So if you have, you know, and you could take that to extreme all the way down to, we have just a couple of deer per square mile. That is where you would have the largest size bucks. There's no bottoming out, you know, or leveling off at a, a moderate density. And, and that's because deer are concentrate selectors and they focus on eating the highest quality forage pieces off of the highest quality forage plants. And regardless of how well your, your property is managed, those are still limited and they're still, they're mixed across the landscape because they're, they're natural plants distributed across the landscape that a deer finds while it's foraging. And so if you have five deer per square mile, there's more of those high quality plant parts throughout the year available to those deer than there are two deer at 10 10 deer per square mile. So I wanted to break that down at first is that there's a trade-off here from a hunting quality standpoint. We want to maintain a population level that is moderate for our area so that we will see deer while hunting. We'll have an enjoyable experience, but we're still maximizing antler growth to to the highest level that, you know, that, that we want. But we do have to understand that if we drove down that deer population really, really low, we could have higher quality deer. And so, uh, and, and, you know, and that's often misunderstood by folks who, who uh, they'll, you know, maybe they're supplementally feeding or they're, they're planting food plots and all. They think they're going to grow the, the antler size of the deer, um, but they're not actually decreasing the deer population. Um, they're trying to maximize the size of the deer population. So rather what's going to happen in that scenario is that population is just going to keep creeping up because maybe you did increase carrying capacity a little bit through your efforts, but the deer population is going to rapidly reach that same point. You're not increasing increasing quality any rather all you did is just squeeze in a couple more does onto your property so it really is a mixture of the two together but but getting to your question a little bit further the way that density dependence affects deer is through their body quality and body size and so if we take the average weight of you know a yearling buck or a yearling doe that average weight over time will decline if habitat quality declines body weights in general, are not the most sensitive index of, of deer population quality. And, and, and I'll get into this a little bit further in, in part two. But, you know, if, if an animal is born in, in a really poor quality forage year, it will be smaller bodied than a deer born the year before or the year after that was born into a really high quality forage year because it will get better. They'll get more milk during lactation. It will have higher quality forages during its first few months of life. All of those factors affect that deer body size and antler size the rest of its life. Um, and, and that's the effects on that individual. But when habitat quality is poor in relation to the, to the deer population, or that carrying capacity deer population balances off, we will see a decline in animal quality over generations. And, and that's through epigenetics. And essentially, if an animal is stressed its whole life, it's, re, it's young that it, that it gives birth to will be smaller than it was because there's not enough resources. And it's essentially this genetic switch to that next animal to say, Hey, there's not enough here 
to grow a huge body, we need to minimize growth so that we can you know, still attain enough nutrients to be able to, to grow our, our adult size and, and reproduce. And so that's the, the long-term epigenetic effect. And so um, examples of this would be along the Ohio River or along the Appalachians, um, in some areas, you can, you can go 50 or 60 miles and the body and antler size of deer will decrease by 10 or 20 percent between two different areas, of, you know, again, 50, 60 miles apart. And really the only big difference there is that the, the habitat quality and the balance between deer population and carrying capacity is better in the one area where the deer are bigger than the other. It's not a genetic effect. It's not a, you know, a true genome effect. It is an epigenetic effect. In other words, those deer that are smaller, if taken to a higher quality area, would be larger in future generations because they're just nutritionally stressed. So, Mariah, just real quick, epigenetics is something that I, I, we haven't introduced in this podcast, so it's the first time you're bringing it up. But basically, by definition, what, what you're saying is we want to express, based on nutrition and all these other factors in the environments where these deer are born, you know, that will impact their epigenetics, the ability to express, you know, their genetic potential, essentially, right? That's that's kind of the right. foundation. So I think for a lot of people, it's a not a concept that's necessarily uh, ever present, but something certainly a dear biologist understands. Let me ask you a, another question, and I and, and I'm not trying to lead us down the path, but you know, all, all these diseases that we've experienced and we're experiencing more often. I, I just looked at a chart the other day, and I'm kind of looking at like in my area in New York, we've had chronic wasting disease, not not in abundance, not not like some of these other states. But in North Carolina specifically, in some of the southern states, what type of diseases are you dealing with that are impacting your deer herd? And obviously, that's another density-dependent factor that's that's uh, you know that's it's, it's impactful. And and how are how are you dealing with with that across the landscape? Maybe not specifically like what's the plan? Because I know some of these they're they're not sure how to handle it. But it, are those things big factors in your state and other states that you're familiar with? So in the southeast, hemorrhagic disease. So either epizootic hemorrhagic disease or blue tongue, which are two different viruses. Um, Hemorrhagic disease has been endemic to the southeast as as long as modern deer researchers have been researching deer down here. And so that's an ever-present circulating virus, and we'll have localized outbreaks from year to year. Um, And and they can can knock down a population pretty quickly. You know, when you have a, a hemorrhagic disease outbreak, you'll have a lot of mortality over a week, two weeks, a month. Um, and, then, and then, of course, once there's a, a real solid freeze, that mortality event will stop. Um, those populations bounce back uh, with some time as, as long as the habitat quality is there. So, you know, in, in, on a property where the population was already balanced with habitat quality, going back, you know, let's say we have 50 deer per square mile, it knocks it down to, to 30 deer. In a couple of years, you'll be back to 50 deer. But if you're maintaining a population over carrying capacity, and there's some examples of this in the southeast, after a hemorrhagic disease outbreak, that population never comes back up because it was being it was it was simply staying above carrying capacity for so long because you had all these long-lived animals that weren't being taken out that weren't reproducing very well because there wasn't enough food to to lactate and actually you know develop a fawn, and so um, but in general, hemorrhagic disease outbreaks the the population recovers relatively quickly within a couple of years. Uh, the other the disease that, of course, is of large concern in the southeast and is, is much more impactful to the uh, deer population long term is chronic wasting disease. And, and 
you know, it's most recently just detected in North Carolina and in some other southeastern states. And that disease is, is the most impactful long term. And I'm talking generational effects here to deer populations. Um, and simply because it's a permanent disease that there's there's you, you can't remove it from the landscape because the infectious agent is a misfolded protein, which is not alive. So the way that that that, that disease is best managed is by reducing spread of the disease um, you don't want to spread it to the new area where it's not already occurring because uh, you can create a new hotspot that way. Yeah, and that stuff is scary long term. And uh, of course, you know that it socially stresses a herd. You get you get a lot of impacts as a result of that. And you know, I, I think we've experienced CWD in small areas of, of New York. I'm in Central New York, and what they what they did to manage the deer population in those areas is they did they did mass shoots around those CWD areas to, to limit the deer population, right, wrong, or different. That was the strategy at that time several years ago. All right, and and I didn't mean to distract the com- conversation, but I, I think a lot of people are thinking about, you know, density-dependent factors, disease being one of those ever-present, right? They're, they're just, it's not, it's it's not, it, it's going to exist over time, over long-term, and, you know, that that's something to consider, you know, across your landscape and how you're dealing with, you know, your deer herd. We've had a uh, hemorrhagic disease breakouts this year in the Hudson area and that was not a surprise but it's 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 been commonplace over the years but you know it it devastated those areas and and of course you know that that impacts your hunting and people don't want to see their their deer populations decrease to a state where hunting's not as productive as as you hoped it to be right so yeah uh, and I, I just want to add a couple things on hemorrhagic disease before we move on it's been spreading farther north in years, just as you mentioned with New York, and, and that's a trend that's been continuing for the last few decades, uh, and, and that's just really a result of climate change and um, the vector, which is a, a midge biting a biting midge that spreads that virus. Um, those conditions farther north are becoming more and more available to the, those midges and to the virus, and that's why we're seeing these outbreaks kind of in new areas. Um, and then one other thing I wanted to mention just about hemorrhagic disease is it's not necessarily directly density dependent. So, it, it, you know, if you're managing a population, if there's a, an outbreak, it's not necessarily because you had so many deer. It's not really how hemorrhagic disease works. It's already circulating in that local midge population, uh, whether or not you have a high deer density or not. Of course, you'll have higher mortalities if you have a higher deer density, but not necessarily a higher rate of, of kill, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, good point. Good correction on, on my part. I appreciate that. Um, so let's go any, any place else you want to go with this conversation now at next, next stage of this, anything else? Uh, just one other thing. And then, and then I think, I, I think we will have covered the main points and that is the, the other way that density dependent effects surface in a deer population. Okay. So if, if you have a, a deer population that is, Overcarrying capacity or, or close, and there's not enough high quality forage available to those deer. The biggest effect that you will have on, on that population's longevity and in the, the quality of that population is fawn reproduction. And when we're talking about fawn reproduction, of course, we usually use use the term fawn recruitment. That's what I'll use, and that is essentially how many do how many fawns successfully are raised to hunting season to open our hunting season uh, for. For, for each doe in your population. So it's normally a percentage, um, you know, normally it's somewhere around like 50%. So in other words, for every two does, it takes, it, there's essentially one fawn produced. So that, that, that's, that's our fawn recruitment rate. Fawn recruitment decreases, of course, as a population becomes more and more nutritionally stressed. 
And in this conversation, usually the biggest topic is predators and, and, and is people. We, we seem to always focus on things directly eating those fawns. But what we fail to take into account is how the relationship between habitat quality or, or I'm sorry, carrying capacity in the deer population affects reproduction through starvation. It doesn't matter how many coyotes you, you have, you know, if, if you have coyotes taking deer, if your population is stressed, nutritionally stressed, those fawns are not going to survive. It doesn't matter how many predators you have or, or don't have. They're not going to survive because there's not enough food for that, that doe to produce milk and feed that fawn. There's been plenty of studies done on this. It, even in the absence of predators, fawn mortality rates can be very high through starvation. And so just to, to spell that out a little bit further, we know deer concentrate selectors. They need very high-quality forage. The highest nutritional need of a deer is a doe when she is lactating, when she's producing milk. She's feeding you know, two or three mouths, um, including hers. And the, the nutritional need for producing milk is very high. If she cannot produce enough milk, she has twins, you know, one of them is going to die. Um, sometimes both of them are going to die. Um, also, during, during her pregnancy, if she's very nutritionally stressed, she'll reabsorb one of those fetuses or, or both of them or she'll abort them. Uh, those are the types of factors that, that seem to never enter the conversation when we're talking about fawn recruitment. Everyone wants to point their finger at, at bobcats and coyotes that are eating fawns. Well, well, heck, I, we all like to eat deer. We're all predators. Hunters are predators. That's part of the puzzle. Yeah. But we fail to recognize the, the biggest factor that we can control. That's, that is habitat quality, and that's the balance of the deer population with habitat. Um, that's the last point I had I wanted to add. No, great great point. Way to end it on that because I think a lot of people, you're right, they think clearly about predation, us being one of the predators, and they don't think necessarily about the environmental conditions those deer are introduced to and you know what they – negatives could be if habitat has been over browsed or mismanaged etc so uh, right. definitely great point and good way to end this thing so so part two we're going to do part two and that part two is going to be talking about managing deer populations uh, specifically and indices like you had kind of alluded to earlier and things to consider as a landowner and i think that's going to be really important because i don't think a lot of people talk about that or have a real strategy and like you said earlier there's a lot of things that go into this like this conversation on density dependency you know there's a lot of things that go into that that get you to the point where okay what is my deer herd like and how do I manage it? And the next phase of it is really trying to think about, you know, population control measures. And, and in this case, looking at the habitat quality and starting to engage a little bit more with that on your landscape. And uh, it is important to be on your landscape and looking at things seasonally. You're not just building a deer herd in a certain portion of the year. I hear that quite often from different people. It's an all season thing, providing all season food and focusing on maximizing, optimizing your property for deer all year long. That's that's the most important thing I hope people get out of this conversation. So Mariah, thanks for being on. I'm looking forward to part two of this and uh, we'll have you on a bunch more times, hopefully the rest of the year. So that that's great. Sounds good, John. I enjoyed the conversation and I'm ready for part two and we get to talk about applying this on the ground. All right, man. Thanks, man. Talk to you soon. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.